Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, welcome to our podcast series. So if you love our podcast, share this podcast with more people so that they will be able to benefit from it. Today, our guest is Tilling, who is a fund manager of Heritage Global Capital Fund. He's an educator at Investing Nook and a frequent speaker on multiple platforms such as The Edge, Money FM, Singapore Management Universities, RHB, Securities, and CIMB. His thoughts are highly sought after by many. We'll get deeper into the work that he's doing and let's give a big warm welcome to my friend Tilling. Hey, thank you, Calvin, for the great introduction. But you're definitely much more of an educator than myself. Uh, I really just share some of my thoughts and my experiences on investing. No, um, I don't actually blog that much as compared to yourself. So I dare say that you're definitely a much better educator than myself. <laughs> I, I think all of us are just trying to do the good work that we, we are doing currently just to kind of spread the message out to more people. So let us start off with something really simple, like share with us your background, how's your upbringing that kind of like led you to be a fund manager and maybe for a start, uh, did you always knew that you wanted to be a fund manager since you were young or it wasn't something that transpired during your, you know, uni days? Well, I think it's really two factors that actually led me to go into finance. One is definitely the family upbringing. My family has always been in the finance industry. I guess a lot of things actually shaped who I am today, actually during the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008. And that was back during when I was actually studying junior college. So during those years in junior high, I was studying economics. And I remember every single family dinner that back then, it was always about finance, you know, Oh, what stock are they buying now? What stock are we actually accumulating now as a family? Um, so that actually got me quite intrigued, you know, with this whole finance and got me started on the finance um, industry. And at the same time, because I was studying in junior college, as I said, uh, I was actually studying economics. I felt that, you know, I, I mean, I enjoy studying like physics, mathematics and all that kind of stuff. But in some sense, it's not very relevant in the real world. You know, I mean, I understand that maths is happening, physics is happening, chemistry is happening, yep. but it doesn't really affect me on a daily life where I can actually see things happening. So, I mean, when I was studying economics, it coincided with the global financial crisis, which was, I mean, fantastic in some sense. In theory, I was learning about all these econs on how our Singapore government actually uses fiscal policy, there's monetary policy, but for Singapore, we are not able to actually use monetary policy. We actually use exchange rate policy and all that. On the other hand, in reality, reading the newspapers, I actually see the government implementing these kind of things that I was actually studying. So that to me was fascinating because I can actually see what I'm actually studying put into practice 
Um, and, and that's the reason why I decided to actually pursue economics as a degree um, when I actually went to university. Um, so I, I guess it was really two fronts. I didn't really think that I'll become a fund manager, but I definitely knew that I wanted to also enter the finance industry. But which part of the finance industry, honestly speaking, uh, I had no clue back then. <laughs> Oh, well, I kind of resonate with you quite a little bit as well because I, I started investing when I was back in uh, Polytechnic. You know, I, can't, I just can't seem to... Okay, naturally, I'm quite competitive when I was pretty young. Um, so I just want to get a top student kind of thing. In, just kind of like a ego kind of thing, right? And I realized mm. that after a few semesters, I just couldn't get it. So I just went to my lecturer and said, Hey, you know, um, Mr. Daniel, how could I actually achieve better grades? And he told me something, you know, if you're playing a game that you think you can't win, then why not just play another game? That means while a lot of your friends are starting, have you ever thought about using what you have studied and apply it to the real world, right? So that's how I kind of started investing. So could you share about like, at which age did you start buying shares and how was your first few years of investing to us? Um, I actually started investing when I was in 2010. Um, that was my first foray into buying stocks. Yeah. My dad wanted to give me the chance to actually start investing in 2007, 2008 during the global financial crisis. But that was actually vetoed by my grandmother and my mom. Oh. They were like, he's still a student. He still has to actually focus on his studying. Yeah. So that essentially got vetoed. Uh, so I actually got started investing in 2010. And that was probably when I was... 19 years old, I guess. Uh, we all start army in 19 years old. So that got me actually started investing because, you know, I was, a, I was, I was down pass um, because of health conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, my pay back then wasn't very high. Uh, I still remember at my max rank, which was corporal, I was only paid about $490 uh, allowance you know, a month. So that was definitely not enough. So I mean, I was giving private, tu uh, private tuition classes and all that kind of stuff. But I thought, you know, I had all this money sitting in the bank account. Why not I put into something, you know, um, buy a stock, collect dividends. And I remember the first stock I bought, it was actually uh, Singapore Post. I still remember I bought it at $1.13. I believe every investor will always remember the first stock they bought and what stock they actually bought it, uh, at what price they bought it at. So I mean, I remember the dividend yield was about 5%. Singapore Post consistently actually pays dividends, the same amount of dividends every single year. I was like, you know, can't go that bad, right? It's Singapore <laughs> Post. Yeah. Uh, so honestly, that was how I actually started investing. Um, but of course, then I started learning like, you know, you have to actually look at a business. You have to actually have to take on a view of where do you think the business would be trending. And of course, you know, the mail business back then wasn't doing too well. Everyone was going electronic mail, emails and all. So the share price started trending downwards. Then I was like, okay, you know, I, I can't just focus on dividends. I have to think about price itself. Do I think that it will actually appreciate? And th the first book I read was Intelligent Investor. And I guess the rest is just, like they say, is history. But that's how I actually got it started. All right. Let's kind of like zoom in to the present, right? So talk to us a little bit about your fund and what kind of like inspire you towards setting this fund and what kind of clients are you usually uh, looking for? Um, so I guess the reason why we actually, or rather my personal reason in wanting to actually set up a fund was that my family has always been dealing with private banks mm -hmm. and not to say that private banks are bad or anything negative about private banks or what, but in some sense, I didn't like the business model of a private bank, you know, how they will always be pitching you products and they'll be making off your commissions and all that kind of stuff. But afterwards, you know, whether the product performs or doesn't perform, mm -hmm. is the responsibility is not on the banker himself. I can't fault the banker as well because we made the decision to actually invest into such products. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like, and that didn't sit well with me that, you know, oh, we, we are just paying these commissions. The banker is just earning based on commissions. And naturally, I mean, if you're earning your, your, your salary through your commissions, 
you need more activity. You want people to be buying and selling more often. But honestly, from an investor point of view, that's not how an investor actually makes money. I mean, an investor makes money more from patiently sitting out, invested in a company and waiting for this company to continue slowly compounding itself or unlocking its value. So, so that's the reason why I actually wanted to set up this fund because it, to me, I wanted a product that, you know, it's more user-friendly in some sense mm-hmm. that, you know, the, your, your revenue model makes more sense. Your interest is actually aligned. How we actually get paid out is similar to essentially is how we actually get remunerated. It's dependent on whether you're actually making money in some sense. There's like 0% management fees, pure performance fees with high watermark. So to me, that made more sense. And that's probably the biggest reason why I actually wanted to set up a fund. Yeah. Yeah, I think we kind of see in a lot of places whereby if you like to just buy a stock through a, maybe a private banking base, you, you pay ridiculous fees, right? But if right now, even if you think you just do it DIY thing or swim, it's just $0. So I, I do have a friend as well who is extremely frustrated by how, you know, the level of service and charges that was given to all these high net worth, you know, it, it seemed like there could be a better solution and alternative out there. So one of the questions that probably the listeners would be very curious is what goes behind the life or average day of a fund manager, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, <laughs> What exactly is a fund manager? So could you share with us your perspective on it? Uh, well, I, I, I can't say that all fund managers actually have the same kind of lifestyle yeah. or the daily life is the same. I cannot say for sure. Um, but for my own personal daily life, it usually starts out with me waking up, of course. Uh, and I usually like to start the day with you know some exercise, going out for a morning run. Um, before I come home, have my breakfast, continue reading on, you know, the daily news. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll be reading quite a number of publications, you know, like Financial Times, Bloomberg, South China Morning Post, Straits Times, um, essentially to get up to date on what's actually happening around the world, the politics, um, businesses, company updates. Um, Then I actually start reading into, you know, what, uh, I mean, I'll I'll start getting emails um, or, or, or these updates on, you know, I, I guess because at the same time, we are also in some sense um, plugged into the uh, private banking um, platform. So I actually get all these emails, um, you know, they're talking about what some interesting companies update, uh, where they actually view the markets. Um, I'll be reading some earnings updates if there's actually any earnings update. Um, so I guess that's usually how I start my day. In the afternoon, it's generally quite free for all, so to speak. It really depends. If I'm free, I'll be actually continue reading up on companies, on history, anything in general, to be honest. Um, there's nothing really specific on how the day should actually go in the afternoon. Then come, you know, closer to late evening and all, that's when I actually spend more time with my wife, uh, whether we head out, have a meal or what. Uh, but that's, I guess, my daily life on a day-to-day basis. But time to time, I mean, I do actually meet up with other like-minded individuals like yourself. I mean, we go out for lunch, uh, just exchange ideas. I find that quite useful. I mean, because investing, there's only so much you can learn yourself sometimes. But if you are able to actually have a community of like-minded individuals, it it actually speeds up your work because maybe yourself, you're reading about something different from me. And then, you know, when we share our ideas, share our thoughts, that's how actually how you can actually accelerate your learning. Or time to time, I mean, before COVID actually happened, there'll be times I'll be flying overseas for conferences, whether it's in Shenzhen or in Hong Kong, to actually meet up with, hear companies talk, enter the, the group meetings and all that kind of stuff. But on a day-to-day basis, that's really just how I actually go about my life. 
Yeah, I guess there's a lot of misconceptions out there, right? Like a farm manager must always initiate a position every day or, or do something regarding their positions every day just to kind of like outperform the market. But we, we do also see that, you know, there are some farm managers who just perform two or four, I mean, kind of like less than 10 trades for the whole year. And most mm. of the most of the time, they're actually spending learning so that when the, when the opportunity comes, they take action on it, right? So... Yeah, I think that's actually a good point, right? And and I also think that you mentioned about you do travel to China, to certain places to see how things are developing. And I think kind of like touching the ground, being in the ground to understand how the situation is. So I think let's kind of zoom out a little bit, right? And let's look at the world today. I think the world today is ever more polarized since Donald Trump had took office. I think it was yesterday or two, a few days ago, uh, Justin Trudeau which is also mentioned that the world's relationship between governments are ever more strained. You know, trade war, the threatening of Chinese companies that's being listed on New York Stock Exchange, the TikTok issues. And, you know, we happen to have conversations as you and I, and I, and I found that your perspective towards China is, is quite unique compared to a lot of my peers. We also talk about the media issue as well. So, Tiling, how can we assess this situation? And do you feel that China is actually misunderstood by the world? So, maybe let me give you an analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if your friend, uh, a married couple or, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, if there's a breakup, if you ask the boyfriend, the boyfriend always says it's girlfriend's fault. If you ask the girlfriend, the girlfriend will always say that it's the boyfriend's fault. It's never their fault. But honestly <laughs> speaking, I think it takes two hands to clap. Um, yeah. In some sense, definitely there is some fault that lies in both parties. So I think if you, if you take a step back, you look at US and China, uh, I won't say that China is totally misunderstood. Um, China definitely have some blame to actually take on, you know, how the corporate governance issues. Um, there was this period in Singapore, I can't remember exactly which year, I think it was maybe 2012, 2013, um, the whole S-chip saga, um, you know, there were so many listed uh, S-chips listed in Singapore that was actually having accounting fraud. People realized that, you know, if you fly down to China, what you expected to be a factory, it was actually just a green, I don't know, plot of land, of grass and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it even inspired this Netflix show, if you actually watched it, it's called um, China, China Hustle. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember wrongly. It was the how Muddy Waters was actually founded, um, how they actually, in US, it's actually called Pink Sheets. Um, investing in all these Chinese companies and all this huge growth potential. But when they actually, one day, this individual decided to actually travel down to China to actually see the factory, they realized that, hey, there's no factory there. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, I guess, that, that's the problem with China. I mean, if even if you fast forward until today, you still have cases like Luckin Coffee, um, whereby they were just inflating sales. Um, but but that, that's the problem in China, I guess, you know, that that is this kind of corporate governance issues. So I can't say that China is totally without blame. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, you know, the US views of China, you know, how they always say that China is communist and all that. Yeah. Um, in some sense, I do think that they are misunderstood because if, I mean, if we understand what communism means in the traditional definition and sense, communism just means that, you know, everyone's equal, no matter how hard you actually work, um, you won't be able to be able to benefit more than the, your other fellow peers. But if you actually look at China today, especially the business landscape, I'll say that there's no other place I see that is even more competitive. Even the US is not as competitive as in China. Your big tech firms in US, your FANGs essentially, mm -hmm. Facebook, um, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, um, they have actually 
achieve quite a dominant role in the market. Um, I know they have always been saying that, oh, they are not monopolistic. Um, Apple always likes to state that they are not a monopoly. Um, it's actually a very, very competitive landscape and all that. But if you actually compare that to China, China, there's so many firms just springing up. New ideas are always coming on board. It's like how um, Tencent was supposedly the dominant uh, big tech firm in China. Suddenly now you actually have ByteDance that's actually competing on par with them. Um, yeah. They might even replace Tencent, no one knows. But that's how competitive China is. And to say that they are communists, I think it's totally misunderstood. Um, so that, that's really my take on China, you know. Um, but of course, you know, if, if you read the media, especially Western media, naturally things have to be hyped up a bit. I mean, otherwise there's no interesting thing to actually be reading on the newspaper already. Um, but, but that's my take on China. You know, I, I don't think that's totally misunderstood. Um, they have to have some fair share of blame. I think they are slowly um, improving, cleaning themselves up, all these kind of corporate governance issues. Time to time, I mean, there will always be some black sheep that is actually committing fraud and all that kind of stuff. It happens even in Japan, in Singapore, it all happens. But I guess they are on the right path. Um, that's how I actually see it. Well, Dilling, I just want to let you know that I've learned so much. And this is the kind of view uh, that you don't see a lot. I mean, if, if, if the listeners, if all of us were just to read the Western media all the time, we don't get this kind of well-balanced uh, opinion. So um, I, I think it's really, really great stuff that um, it's kind of a very well-balanced thought as well. And, and you know, the, your perspective on communism in, in China, you know, a lot of us didn't kind of see it that way. But it's, how, it's so scary that ByteDance is the pace as they're gaining market share. I, I think it's really, really tremendous. Um, right. So kind of, let's say we kind of like move into a bit of uh, what you do, right? The, the investment strategy that you do. Um, what is your investing process, right? Like, are there certain characteristics that you look for in the companies that you like to be part of your portfolio? Um, I guess no matter whether you talk about value strategy or growth strategy, um, one common thing I would say that I look for in both styles, it's really management. I yeah. find that management is crucial. You want to be finding a management that it's, you know, hardworking, um, smart, but more importantly, honest. Because yep. if you find a management that's dishonest, they'll be find every single way to actually screw you over. Mm -hmm. um, so honesty is definitely one important trait you actually want to find in your management. You want to be reading all the past annual reports, looking at what the annual, or rather looking at what management is saying versus the actions they're actually doing. Is it congruent? Um, you know, are they being fair to minority shareholders? At the same time, you know, especially for growth companies, you want to be seeing whether management is like innovators. Mm -hmm. Are they constantly pushing the boundaries of the company? Um, you know, companies like Netflix, they transition from a DVD rental company to what it is today. Um, that's the kind of management you actually want. You want the management to constantly push the company to greater heights. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, especially for value companies, um, you want management who is actually honest, whose interest is actually aligned with minority shareholders and not just lining their own pockets or, you know, um, not wanting to actually distribute excess cash, you know, hoarding money in the bank accounts. We see this a lot in Singapore. Um, but, but to me, management is really, really important um, because it actually affects how the business is. The business can be a great business, but it's with a shitty management that's not willing to unlock value, is not willing to share this kind of benefits with the shareholders. 
um, there's no point investing in such a company. It's probably just what we call all, uh, value track. Yeah, I think what a lot of investors kind of neglect is actually the management, right? Like even if today, if anyone of us were to download any brokerage reports from any firms, you, you see that they hardly talk about the management, the kind of background they have, the earnings transcript, you know? So I thought I felt that, you know, the point that you made is excellent because at the end of the day, a business is nothing but a group of people coming together to create or to do great things together. So great point over there. You know, I, I spent some time reading about what you do and also, um, you know, having conversations with you as well. I, I noticed that, you know, you know, okay, just, just take the praise from me, right? I, I think you're an absolute master, you know, at looking at psychical industries, uh, banks, uh, construction, even uh, luxury retail. I believe we have some conversations regarding those sectors, right? So I think one of the secrets when it comes to investing is kind of like picking your own spots, right? I mean, for me, I cannot win in every sectors. So I focus in certain sectors. Um, but for you, you know, how do you decide that you wanted to focus on those few sectors such as banks, construction, and even uh, luxury retail? Um, well, honestly speaking, if you, I mean, we, we all start um, looking within our own home ground. And being a Singaporean, naturally, you'll focus on Singapore first as your first investing um, spot. I know many Singaporeans, they probably try investing in US first. Um, but personally, I mean, because reading Intelligent Investor and all that, um, this whole scuttlebutt theory, I, I still remember, you know, I wanted to invest into uh, Old Chang Kee. So mm. I actually went down, uh, check out Old Chang Kee's outlets at Far East Plaza and all that. I wanted to invest at, uh, in OSIM. I went down to OSIM shops and all that. So naturally, the first step was actually looking at the Singapore market. And if we actually look at the Singapore market, um, our few biggest industries that actually dominate um, our GDP growth is actually banks, um, property developers, and construction firms. Mm. These three are our biggest three industries. Um, so naturally, that's the reason why I'm actually focusing on these three com uh, industries. And you actually realize that these three um, industries are very, very closely interlinked to one another. Um, it definitely helps that my family has been you know, in the banking and commodity industry um, so I might have some better understanding of, you know, like banking history, um, how banks have actually moved from pre-liberalization to what it is today. Um, pre-liberalization pre is actually um, before 1970s and our banking sector started getting more liberalized in 2000s onward. Mm -hmm. So it, it definitely helped with the family's influence and background. Um, but if you think about it, you know, Singaporeans, the first investment that we always think about is buying a property. Um, so to me, understanding the property market is definitely very, very important. Um, understanding the demand and supply cycles, understanding why um, property prices will go up, come down. If you actually trace, I mean, and I talked about this in quite a number of my other talks, um, yep. we, we look at the entire capital cycle, the property cycle in Singapore. Mm -hmm. We trace it all the way from the 1990s all the way till today the booms, the buzz, um, it, how, how the policies actually come into play. But at a fundamentally, what actually drives it is really the supply. Mm -hmm. If you actually track the supply numbers, you actually realize um, how, the, uh, how the price, property prices should actually trend. And if you think about it, your banks, our Singapore banks, the biggest loan exposure is actually to the property market, whether it's construction loans or home mortgages, and that's the reason why I say that the Singapore, Singapore property market is very, very closely interlinked with the Singapore banks. And mm -hmm. at the same time, the property market, it's naturally very closely interlinked with construction firms, whether is it equipment leasing or um, construction materials. 
Um, that's the reason why I naturally actually gravitate more to these three sectors. Um, and I guess Singapore is an easy market. You know, our property market in Singapore is really just Singapore. It's not like tracking um, China's property market where, you know, you have so many different cities. Not every property developer is in every single city. Uh, and every city has their own supply and demand numbers as well. So it's definitely much harder to be um, analyzing it to that kind of level of detail for China. But mm -hmm. I think for Singapore and Hong Kong, it's definitely much easier simply because Singapore's property market is just Singapore's property market. Whereas China's property market is made out of so many different country, uh, different cities. Um, yeah. Well, okay. You know, I started my journey investing in Singapore companies as well. And I kind of ventured to, to US, you know, buying to US companies as well. Uh, but I always thought that I was very late to the game, right? I, I, I wish that within the first two years of investing, I, you know, I kind of I look outwards into um, other countries such as US. I think the quality of company is actually definitely much better. So there's some kind of progress that I've made and I changed certain strategies that I have. So I just wonder for you, right, Tilane, because I know you read a lot and I know that you, you are constantly evolving, you know, so that you can deliver the, the performance for your investors as well. So just wonder, you know, how has your investment process changed over the years? Because I, I know you, you are deep value. Has it changed a little bit or could you share with us any stories that you have? So definitely the strategy has uh, constantly been changing over the years. Um, I, I mean, for the most part of my 10 years of investing, uh, I would say that I'm pretty much of a deep value investor. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess in Singapore, not many... Um, individuals will actually say that they're deep value investor. Most individuals that I know of, um, bloggers that I know of, are more or less growth investors. Yeah. Um, so why do I say that I'm more deep value in the sense? It's because when I first started out investing, um, I, like I said, I read Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. So I was more Graham at heart. I'm looking at companies um, that are net nets essentially. And back in 2010, it was so much easier to find net net companies. Uh, we were just coming out of global financial crisis. Markets was just recovering. So naturally, you were able to actually find a lot of such, um, I won't say great quality companies, but it's pretty okay companies um, traded at really, really cheap valuations. I remember some of the companies are like Mempac International, oh, yes. Fisher Tech, Syntronics. Mm. A lot of these um, sort of semiconductor names um, in Singapore traded at really, really cheap valuations, be it from an asset point of view or earnings point of view. Um, so it was a great ground, fertile ground in investing in such companies. And over the years, you know, even up till 2017, it was doing great. Up to, mm -hmm. sorry, 2016, 2017, it was doing great. But the problem was as these companies um, either get privatized or the valuations revert back to normal valuations, I had to actually slowly find new companies. But at the same time, there will not be that many net-net companies in the market already as it's something that it's more common when there's a huge recession. Yep. But when things actually revert back to its norms, valuations of companies don't trade at that kind of levels where you know your net cash or, or even um, as cash minus all liabilities, I remember I even could find cash minus all liabilities was even greater than the market cap, which totally don't make sense. Um, so then I start, had to start thinking, you know, back in, that was in 2016, which coincided with the um, property decline in Singapore. Mm -hmm. I saw all these companies like CDL, the Singapore banks, um, they actually dropped about 30%. And I mean, at the end of the day, these companies, you know, companies like your Singapore banks and CDL will never trade at 
net net levels. Yet the valuations have actually dropped about 30 over percent. So that's got me started thinking, you know, can there be a case to actually be investing in such company? Can it be called deep value investing in some sense? And that's how I actually chanced upon this book called Capital Returns, um, looking at a capital cycle, um, looking at the historical price to book ratio, um, looking at what's the average price to book compared to the plus minus one standard deviation. And that's why I say that in some sense, it's still called deep value investing, um, but we have shifted away from your really small mid cap companies to larger cap companies, um, such as CDL, um, Capital Land, UOL, Singapore local banks, simply looking at, at it from a price to book level, um, looking at it, whether the company's valuations is like traded below is negative one standard deviation. Um, but more recently, so I mean, this was how my trajectory in terms of the strategy was actually um, progressing. But at, at core, I was actually still a deep value investor. Uh, but what actually happened was that during this COVID, um, that actually hit me much bigger, um, harder that you know, a lot of these value companies that I was invested in, you know, property landlords, property developers, I realized that, and it took me COVID to actually realize this. I mean, pre-COVID, we, we sort of understand that, yeah, you know, there's digitalization. Um, a lot of peop uh, people are shopping e on the e-commerce platforms like Taobao, Lazada, Shopee, etc. But somehow I couldn't join the dots. It took me till COVID to join the dots that, you know, especially your hard assets, um, your property landlords and all that, I do not think that they'll be performing very, very well going forward. Um, a lot of things are shifting. I, I don't want to just throw this, you know, the world is changing so easily. But honestly speaking, there are actually some real fundamental shifts in the economy. You know, I was actually attending the local bank's AGM this year um, and it was actually webcasted. So a lot of them were saying that because of two months of lockdown, the kind of digitalization that they were actually seeing was accelerated. Um, a lot of people were shifting online to do their transactions. So they're actually rethinking their brand strategy that, you know, I don't need so many branches. I don't need to rent so much physical space anymore because a lot of people are going online. And it's similar to what Microsoft, the CEO of Microsoft actually said. He said that the digitalization they expected to happen in two years happened in two months. So that was what I started actually seeing. And it started clicking to, in, in my head, you know, that all these physical shops, the supply of the physical shops will not change. You know, it's not like Ion can suddenly disappear or Wheelock can suddenly disappear. But the demand of these retail space will drastically drop. And even if you go to Neon City, um, the POSD at, I think, the fourth level or fifth level, it's no longer there. Um, it's not that DBS is collapsing. It's just that they are rethinking their branch strategy. You don't need so many branches anymore. So if you think about it, it's economics 101, demand and supply. If um, supply of retail shops is constant and demand of these retail shops are going to be dropping, it just means your average rental rates of these retail space will be declining as well. And this is a fundamental decline. It's not just, a, oh, there's a recession, so rental rates are dropping. Uh, when markets actually recover, uh, rental rates actually move back up. This is a fundamental shift downwards. And if you think about it, the valuation of a company is just a function of ROE. And ROE is essentially your rental rates. If ROE is dropping, it just means the intrinsic value of these property de developers, uh, property landlords are actually declining as well. Um, so that, that, that actually got me started thinking like, you know, all these value companies. And for the longest time, 
I, I mean, both of you, you and I should actually know about this. Growth actually has been outperforming um, value. So it, it started making me think about, you know, looking at tech companies. I mean, we do look at tech companies even pre-COVID, but really the bigger names like Tencent, Alibaba, Facebook, um, and so happened, you know, that Facebook had a scandal in 2016. So it made it easier for us to be investing to Facebook. But it, it got me started looking at other tech companies, the smaller tech companies, you know, companies like, let's say, DocuSign, um, Fastly, Cloudflare, Okta, Twilo. I mean, if you look at the Facebook groups, I, I believe these are common names that a lot of investors are actually talking about. You yourself probably talked a lot about these kind of companies as well. Um, so, so that got me started looking at such companies, which I guess uh, is what you'll call more growth investing. And I also understand um, this is something that you, talk, you teach a lot also in your classes. Um, so I guess that's how my, my investing strategy has actually progressed from really your net net companies to deep value, but you know, your larger cap companies to what it is today. Uh, I, I call it a barbell approach where I, I still have a good mix of value companies, value companies meaning growth at reasonable price. Um, these are companies that are traded cheap, but then um, or, or they are traded cheap for um, certain market conditions. Like in this current COVID, you have the banks that are traded cheap, but in the long run, they will still be growing. Um, but on the other hand, um, I'm investing in all these growth companies, you know, the sm um, um, that, which are more volatile, valuations might be more expensive. Some of them might not even have any earnings yet. But that, that's how I, I essentially see my strategy now. You know, you, you want to be balancing out the volatility with all of these value companies that's giving out dividends because such growth companies are actually not giving out dividends. Um, so that's how I actually see my investment strategy now. Tilling, it actually made a lot of sense. I, I guess the barbell strategy. Uh, and, and it's true as well. A lot of great companies are you know, increasingly being delisted. Um, that, but there's still one company that I pretty like a lot in Singapore is Palmatic Data, riding on the mm. 5G trend. You know, and I think the downside value that we can see is actually their freehold property. Yes. Um, but again, I think they are reviewing their capital structure. They might pay out uh, quite a... Oh, I guess they have already paid out, uh, you know, some sort of big dividends as well. Um, so one thing I've learned from you and also my personal observa uh, observation is that for a lot of fund managers out there, um, I think, um, you know, they take pride in their strategy. And when, you know, you have to change your strategy or when they have to change their strategy, uh, they re refuse to do it because there, there seems to be certain pride in what, uh, they do, and I think rightfully so. Uh, perhaps, you know, when a fund decides to change its strategy, um, investors may judge them, maybe, um, you know, certain judgment, uh, judgment may, may be upon them. But I feel that, you know, investing is kind of like a constant uh, evolution, right? You kind of look out there. And I think um, the part that you kind of rationalize um, why you sort of think that, you know, growth investing you know, could be something quite important as well. Because, you know, the way I, I, I hear you is that you seem to be able to make very uh, sharp observation um, around, you know, situations that's around you and kind of rationalize in your head and kind of draw, um, you know, clues from, you know, management such as um, Microsoft CEO. And, you know, recently, Berkshire also invested in Snowflake, right? And that kind of, kind of maybe gave the validation to a lot of value investors to say, hey, you know, value could be found in growth companies as well. And, you know, the fact that Snowflake is uh, loss-making, but Berkshire made a decision. Uh, why, why do you think he made that decision? And, and, and I know that decision that 
um, might not be made by Warren Buffett himself, but could be one of his guys. Um, do you have any thoughts on it? Um, so I, I think you rightfully actually pointed out one point that a lot of investors, because of their ego, they're not actually willing to make changes. Um, and I think that's the biggest detriment to most investors that, you know, because of ego, you're not willing to admit that you're wrong. A lot of times you're actually holding on to a stock. Um, although you may think that you, you know that it's actually wrong, but because, um, you know, maybe you put it out publicly that, you know, you're invested in this company, you want to actually follow through because of ego. You don't want to show that you're wrong because you also think that people always expect you, you know, if you're a fund manager, sometimes people just expect that naturally you should be more correct than such, even such a term. Um, you, know, people, you know, when you give talks, conferences and all that kind of stuff, you, you might give some stock tips or some case studies that you're actually um, really interested in in the company that you're invested in. And in some sense, it gives that kind of commitment that, oh, you know, I'm backing such a company. But you always have to be asking yourself, um, is your initial thesis wrong? And if it's wrong, just admit that it's wrong and move on. You know, it's the same thing Buffett actually did. He invested in all these airline companies. And when he felt that, you know, there is a fundamental shift, he doesn't know where the intrinsic value is anymore. He just wrote it off entirely. It's not that, oh, let's sell it in tranches. Maybe we, from 5%, we reduce it to 4% or whatsoever. It's immediately, if it's wrong, I just sell off the entire thing. And I think as investors, whether you're value or not value, um, that, that's the kind of approach you actually should have. If you're wrong, just admit fault and just move on. Um, that, there's no point keep on harping on where the mistake might lie or, or what, you know? So, so that's, that's how I think. And yeah, like what you said, you pointed out, you know, it's really boils back down to ego. Um, so I find that as an investor, we shouldn't be so fixated on what value investing should be. Um, and, you know, over the years, value investing will change. Um, I find that it's actually keeping a very, very open mind, you know, on how you actually define value. Um, it's not that, value must be your hard assets, your brick and mortar companies. Um, as things change, as the economy transitions to what it is today, value is actually defined differently. And I think that the best example is actually looking at your Forbes list in Singapore. Your traditional Forbes list, maybe 10, 20 years ago, is probably made up of tycoons who are, made their money in property, in banking sectors and all. Um, the only tycoon who made his money other than banking and property is probably Go Cheng Liang who actually made his money from pain commodities. But otherwise, generally, the kind of um, industries you are looking at is your brick and mortar companies, your value companies. But look at the Forbes list today. It's dominated by people like um, Razor, the founder of Razor, Hai Ti Lao, although he's not Singaporean, but yeah, he's on Singapore's Forbes list. Um, one of um, this Chinese guy who is actually in medical equipment, um, Eduardo Severin, who is the in uh, one of the co-founders of Facebook last time. So you can actually see even the Forbes list is changing, you know, of how industries that would have made you a lot of money back then is no longer the same it is today. Even reading this article, um, it was probably a month back or so on, on Lee ka wealth. You know, how Lee ka wealth today, one third of it is actually made up of Zoom. I, I think it's quite amazing that he spent so many years you know, right from the start when he was pushing that fl plastic fl flower cut um, uh, um, thing, uh, all the way till today, he, he spent so much sweat, heart, tears, blood and all, um, building up Hong Kong, 
restructuring Hong Kong to what it is today in CK Assets and CK Hutchinson. Um, and now one third of his wealth is actually made out of his investment in Zoom. You know, his investment in Zoom was valued at about $800 million last year. And this year is actually valued at $11 billion, which totally dwarfs his investments into CK um, Assets or CK Hutchinson. Um, and that, that to me is a really, really amazing fact um, and how things are actually changing. And we have to actually recognize this change and embrace it, so to speak. Um, on my thoughts on you know, Berkshire investing to Snowflake, like you said, I don't think that it's um, Buffett's decision. It's probably one of his lieutenants. Um, but in some sense, um, it was Buffett who gave this decision-making power to his two lieutenants, the freedom to actually make whatever decisions um, they actually deem fit. So um, I, I think it's a good signal to us as well. You know, it's another signal on top of what I talked about in terms of the Forbes list, um, Lee Cushing's wealth, um, and Berkshire's investing into Snowflake. It's just another signal to us that you know there might be some value in this kind of SaaS companies, um, otherwise known as software as a service. But if you think about it, you know, ignore but whatever Berkshire has actually done. How has Adobe and Microsoft progressed? Back then, 10, 20 years ago, when we bought, we bought our Microsoft operating system or our Microsoft Office, it comes to But today, Microsoft Office is no longer coming in a CD. It's downloaded online and they have this subscription plan. You know, instead of just buying Microsoft Office, I don't know, 2019, which you can use forever, they are saying that you buy our Microsoft, I think it's called 365, um, you pay this yearly subscription fee, and we'll constantly update the Microsoft Office on your, on, on your desktop. Same thing with Adobe. You know, back then, you just buy a CD and you can constantly use your Adobe Photoshop and all that kind of stuff. But today, it's actually a subscription plan again that you pay a yearly fee uh, to actually use the Adobe Photoshop service and it's constantly updated for you as well. So you can actually see how these well-established companies are also moving onto the subscription platform um, kind of a revenue model uh, which is quite similar to what software as a service essentially is. You know, you have all these um, subscriptions, paying these recurring earnings for these companies. But so, so that's how I see it. You know, things are really changing. And that's why I say that there is a fundamental shift in the economy, how things are being run, how we go about our daily lives. COVID is more of just an accelerator of what has actually been happening pre-COVID. Yeah, I, I guess one point is that if you look at Zoom, you look at a lot of software companies that you have mentioned, uh, the reason why they kind of rose so much in value is also the value that's providing us. And I think um, for a long time, I think the world has struggled with uh, uh, productivity. It hasn't been really fantastic for many countries, but now with software, you can do more things and, and that's, that's real value that's been created there. And, and I do see that gradually we are starting to recognize that um, you know, so so I, I think you also mentioned about one thing, uh, which, which I really like what you say. Um, sometimes I guess we just have to be ruthless, right? Um, not to have any, you know, emotional attachment to the stocks that we have. So, you know, if you know that this is wrong, uh, you know, it's time to sell it, you know, you just got to do it. You know, it's, it's much better than having the position lingering in your portfolio and you have to look at it every day and wonder, you know, when is the day you're going to cut it. Um, so on that topic itself, I also like to find out uh, from you, um, you know, um, as, as an investor personally for myself, I hardly like to sell my stocks unless the business has, you know, certain fundamentals that deteriorated really badly. 
Um, so what is your self-discipline, you know, like in what scenarios where you really will feel that, hey guys, you know, look, it's time to sell uh, the, some of the positions in the, in the fund. And uh, if you could just, you know, highlight one or two examples, that'd be really good. Um, so I think it really depends on, because like I said, it's a barbell approach. Um, are we talking about value companies or growth companies? Um, for value companies, it's not really a buy and hold forever kind of approach. End of the day, in your head, you know there is sort of an intrinsic value. When the company has hit its intrinsic value, that's the time you actually should be selling the company simply because it's a fair price to be selling the company, recycling the capital and find the next company to be invested in. Um, so that, that, that is one of, the uh, one of the sell reasons for value companies. On top of, you know, when, when, you, when you're saying that, you know, if your initial thesis is wrong, if you realize that management is fraudulent, if you realize that, you know, something has just gone wrong um, um, away from your initial, uh, your investment, not because of your analysis. You may, it might even be your analysis that you calculated something wrongly or what. All these reasons you definitely have to sell. But, you know, for value companies, when it hits its fair price, that's when I'll actually sell the company. Um, but for growth stocks, I think um, tracking the earnings call is way more important hearing what management is saying about the business, um, where they actually see the business growing into, asking yourself, making a judgment call on, do you think that the business can continue generating, generating that kind of revenue growth rates? It's even more crucial, um, simply because, you know, the valuations, as we all know, it's already so high. Even pre-COVID, such tech companies, SaaS companies, the valuations have never been cheap, simply because, these kind of tech companies are delivering way higher revenue growth rates. Um, you are seeing growth rates like 40%, 50%. So a lot of um, your, your valuations depends on the growth rates. And that's why I say that you have to keep on looking, um, reading what the management is saying, com um, reading the competitors, what the competitors are saying as well. Um, do you think that you know, the companies can continue generating this kind of high growth rates? If it's not actually possible, then that's the point where I would actually want to sell the company or any fundamental shift in the company. You know, a lot of these tech companies I find is really dependent on the management teams, the founder themselves continuously um, innovating the company. Um, so if the founder disappears, you know, the founder somehow changes his position um, from let's say a CTO to a CEO, uh, that to me, it's a warning sign as well because the founder himself, he's a tech guy. Um, I would actually prefer that he retains him, uh, keeps himself as a CTO instead of a CEO because the roles are very, very different. As a CTO, you can continue in product innovation, rolling out new products. Whereas when you come to a CEO, you're thinking more broad strokes, you know, how the company should actually progress. You'll be bogged down by a lot of, you know, meetings and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I would want the founder himself to remain as a CTO. So it, it, you have to actually look is there any changes in the founder? Um, if the founder is no longer part of the company, then to me, it might be a sign that you should actually sell the company. I mean, it's up to you to make a judgment call, of course. Maybe they are able to get in a professional that is able to actually run the company very, very well. Um, but, you know, yeah, so you really have to make a judgment call there. It's like Snowflake. The founders themselves are not the CEO. The CEO was actually brought in um, from externally, whereas the the, the, the founders themselves, the two founders uh, or three founders, oh, sorry, two founders, I can't remember their name, sorry. Um, 
but they retain as being a CTO, you know, continuously um, um, working on the product itself, rolling out new enhancements, functionalities and all. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I have a very interesting question that just popped in my mind, right? Um, hypothetically, let's say we, we were to say there are certain things that an investor could do to kind of increase the returns, you know, um, in just a perfect scenario kind of world. You know, what would some things that you would encourage investors to do so that, you know, they could maybe perform better in the stock market? Could it be more like, you know, uh, learning from various sources or maybe adopting the investing mindset, you know, don't, don't kind of trim your winners from, from that perspective? Um, I, I guess you, it's like what you pointed out, you know, uh, the conventional thinking is that when a stock price goes up, you would sell your winners to allocate to your losers because you know that the, because of mean reversion, your losers should naturally um, recover uh, while your winners should naturally come down. Um, but, but that's a wrong thinking. You know, the winners are winners for a reason. The losers are losers for a reason. Um, so the, the right way you should be doing this, it's not to actually trim your winners, it's to actually allocate more money to your winners uh, and continue compounding your money. I know it's something uh, not comfortable, uh, this is something you and I have talked about quite a lot. You know, uh, how I personally even find it not comfortable constantly adding to your winners. I mean, if you look at your winners that has actually um, increased by 50%, 100%, sometimes even 200%, it is uncomfortable to constantly add to them, you know, because the price chart just looks like this. <laughs> and naturally, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. Yeah. It has to come down at one point. Um, so so, so that, that's definitely something uncomfortable. Um, but just to share with you a case study. Um, so I, I'm invested in this company called China Meitong. It's an auto dealership in China. Um, I think I shared with this with you previously. Um, I invested it at about nine Hong Kong dollars. Um, but I've constantly, constantly added to my position. Uh, my average price has constantly increased. Uh, and because these kind of high valuation companies are more volatile, you see swings sometimes, you know, maybe today you can drop even 10%, but sometimes these kind of, these kind of drops for no apparent reason, uh, it's a good opportunity to actually add on to the company, especially if you believe that the long-term thesis, you know, the five-year time horizon, 10-year time horizon is still very, very positive for the company. Nothing has fundamentally shifted. Why would you want to be selling out of the company? Why would you want to be panicking just because the share price dropped 10% or 20%? That's the best time for you to constantly add to your position. And throughout, you know, my investing journey, investing into China Meitong, um, yeah, you know, while there may, it may have been volatile, there might have been dropped sometimes of 20%, um, but adding to it, um, it has definitely been very, very rewarding. Um, in my per per portfolio, um, it's one of the biggest um, uh, uh, returns I actually achieved. Um, even after adding to it multiple times, um, since I actually bought the company, it's actually still up 200%. Wow. Um, so it, it makes sense, you know. Although I initiated uh, at cost, it's about 2.5% of my portfolio. Um, but because of the compound effect, it's now about 8-9% of the portfolio. And if you actually read investors, um, certain of the super value investors and all, they actually talked about this also. They talked about how your portfolio uh, is actually um, driven by probably your top three stocks only. It's not the entire portfolio. As long as you get it right for those three stocks, 
two, three stocks or maybe five stocks, um, it actually will drive your entire portfolio returns. And these compounding effects over time, it will become one of the biggest positions in your portfolio. I mean, if you invested in Netflix 10 years ago, you'll be sitting on 13,000 plus returns um, today. Um, so, so that's, I guess, you know, it's very, very important. Don't, don't trim your winners. <laughs> Stay faithful to your winners. <laughs> yeah, if nothing is wrong, don't just kind of trim it away, right? And I still yeah. think, um, you, know, the, you know, averaging up is something that's psychologically so hard because you always feel like you're paying higher, right? But I think um, there are some um, situations whereby even you're paying a higher a price in terms of share price, but the valuation could be cheaper just because of the outperformance in terms of fundamentals. And, you know, if one thing that I, I, I took away from your sharing is that the hardest thing is always the most rewarding, right? And, and it's a reason why, I guess, when it comes to really wanting to improve your returns, you know, we just got to do the hardest thing. And I think initially it might be a little bit difficult, uh, discomforting as well. You know, but I think uh, once we have gone through that phase, uh, you know, I think the results would have uh, improved much more. Okay, so we're going to ask a question that's more reflective in nature. Um, and sometimes it could uh, be good stuff as well. So if you could to really go back to like 20 years earlier, or maybe not say 20 years, maybe let's say uh, five or six years earlier, um, would you have invested uh, differently in terms of your process and what were the things that you kind of wish you knew or if there's someone that could tell you you know you you wish that you 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 would have access to that knowledge um so i understand you know uh, a lot of times people will say that you know i wish i did something differently um you know if we all knew um what <laughs> would actually have happened we'll probably be investing in zoom <laughs> put all our money in zoom uh and, and be way richer than what we may be today. Uh, but I always feel, you know, I mean, many people have actually asked me this question before. And I don't want to sound cliche about this, but I think it's really quite true. Um, if I can tell something to the, the 10 years ago me, I'll actually not say anything differently. Simply because it is the experiences that I went through these 10 years that has actually shaped me into who I am today. Even in terms of investing strategy, I think it's, it's actually good that I actually went through this entire cycle. I mean, even Buffett went through that cycle, you know, investing in net-net companies and slowly transitioning into what he calls, um, you know, because he got influenced by Phil Fisher. He started investing in the companies with franchise value. Um, Charlie Munger was also influencing him. Instead of, you know, just investing in your net-net companies, invest into companies that are compounders. But it also took him quite a number of years to actually do this entire shift. And I always, I mean, I'm a, I'm a gamer at heart. I, I like playing computer games. Uh, one of my favorite computer games is World of Warcraft. So if you think about it, you know, in the raids of World of Warcraft, um, if you're going to fight the Lich King, you cannot fight the Lich, Lich King, which is the major boss, immediately. You have to first fight the creeps, uh, slowly progress to the mini bosses before you eventually fight the big boss. And investing is the same thing, you know. It's like a game. You have to start from stage zero to stage one and slowly move up to where Buffett is today. And I find that by going through all this, you know, the whole process, you know, from net net investing um, to do deep value to growth investing, you sort of understand the nuances on what works, what doesn't work. Um, so I think it's good that I actually went through the whole progression. Um, I took away many, many uh, learning experiences. 
And it has actually shaped who I am today, how I actually approach my investments today. If I went straight into growth investing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as well. But I don't really know how it would have actually shaped my approach, my thinking, um, how I look at companies. If I didn't invest into Singapore and went straight into investing in the US, it could have been way more rewarding. Uh, but from a learning point of view, I, 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 can't, I don't know if I, it will be the same. You know, I would not have seen all this S-Chip saga, looking at you know, the whole Bluemont saga, looking at all these Chinese companies, how they actually um, defrauded investors, uh, came out with a checklist on how to actually spot um, companies that actually defraud investors. Um, so I, I'm actually quite happy of how I actually progress. I don't think I'll actually um, tell my 10 years ago self to actually change anything, but rather just, just continue doing what you're doing. And slowly, you know, as you learn, um, you, you will shift along the way. Ling, you know, I, I just feel like you're an optimist and um, most often they're not, you know, speaking to a lot of investors, they tend to be very optimistic about the future. And I think um, that's also partly our role, right? I mean, we, we look at the companies that we want to invest in, we see that the change that they're creating for the world, the value they're delivering to the customers as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned that you took away a lot of things from the last 10 years, uh, likewise. Um, today, I took away a lot of things, uh, learn, learn a little bit more about you as well, you know, your beginnings, <laughs> your role as a fund manager, and, and, you know, demonstrating to our listeners that, you know, we need to make the paradigm shift of averaging up on our winners, provided they are really good companies, and sharing about your self, uh, self-discipline, and especially your views on China, which I felt that was really, really um, something uh, very refreshing. All right, so with the last question, how can investors find out more about you? <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I don't think I am. Uh, I mean, like I, like I said right at the start of this um, podcast, um, I don't actually write that often. I mean, you can check out my writings at investingnook.com, um, but I really write only when I have something, um, something to really add value in that sense. Um, you know, when in the markets today, I find that COVID has already happened for so many months. I have nothing more to actually add to my thoughts on the COVID pandemic or, you know, the US-China trade war. Um, that has happened many times already. Um, I have written numerous articles on COVID pandemic, my thoughts on it, how the economy is actually shifting from value to growth. Um, that, that sort of articles, I mean, only when there's something important that I want to actually share will I actually uh, write an article on it. Um, that's why I say that you probably are more of an educator than myself. Um, if, if people are actually interested more you can actually check out my website like I said uh, but time to time I actually do give talks courses um, people like yourself would invite me to actually do this kind of sharing uh, which I think is a great sharing as well um, but yeah I, I don't really know how else can they actually reach me um, maybe they can actually ask you more questions <laughs> and we can actually set up another of such meetings um, you know whether it's a public webinar or what but yeah, I'm always open to sharing. Eileen, I just want to thank you for you know taking out time from your busy schedule to be with us tonight on this podcast. So with that, we'll just end on this note and thank you so much, Eileen. No worries. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media.